When I was in high school, near the end of the term, I remember seeing a sight that shocked me. I remember pulling into the car park of my high school and was shocked to find a mangled car at the entrance, sitting right there at the entrance of the car park to my high school. It looked like a Coke can had been smashed and stompled, and the wheels were com coming out each side. And I remember looking at it going, there's no way anybody would survive that crash. Turns out, the car had actually been hauled in and placed there and put on display as a, a kind of warning to students. The, the warning was, look, the end of the school year is coming, and with all the partying and schoolies and all that stuff that surrounds it, what's the message? Don't drink and drive, right? Because if you do, you'll end up like this. And it, and it really was a bit, I mean, it's a bit jolting. But that's the kind of strategy the writer of 1 Samuel uses towards the end of Saul's reign. And as King David ascends to the throne, he includes a story which shows us the horror the horror that happens when we try to live our lives without God. When we pushed God to the margins of our lives. We're actually working with two stories this morning. Before we get to the horror story in chapter 28, we begin a story with David, but we find that David does something quite out of character out of the norm. Two chapters both serve as a warning about the dangers of living without God. So first, when we look at David, living without God leaves you vulnerable. Living without God leaves you vulnerable. Second, and this is King Saul, living in defiance of God leaves you hopeless. Living without God leaves you vulnerable. Living in defiance of God leaves you hopeless. May God add his blessing to his word as we look to him in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. We pray that you would speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive from you what we need. Open our eyes, open hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name and for your glory's sake. Amen. So as we've witnessed, if you haven't, if you're just joining us, there's something about King Saul. He has an insatiable appetite, like a teenage boy has an insatiable appetite, but it's not for food. It's for killing this guy, David. But nevertheless, every time he tries to kill him, the Lord seems to hand David, or sorry, 
reverse that, hand Saul right into David's hand. Be that in a tent, be that in a cave. Uh, you remember when Saul and his men are camped out? You remember that? They pull into the caravan park, they're hunting David. And as they set up camp, they're fast asleep. It was David and his nephew, do you remember this, who crept up to the king's campsite, snuck in, and there is King Saul laying there, spear next to him, and they could have easily assassinated both King Saul as well as his general. You remember that? But you'll recall that David recognized the sanctity of Israelite kingship. Do you remember that? He goes, oh, you know, he's the Lord's anointed. So he left it into God's hands. And then once Saul wakes up, it dawns on him that David has spared his life yet again. So he confesses his sin towards David. And there was something interesting about this one at this, here at this campsite. You remember David's on one side of the sort of the ravine and, and, Saul, and Saul's shouting out to him. He goes, I will never pursue you again. Oh, David, you're more righteous than I. You're great. I'm so sorry. Just come. Well, David's not a fool, right? I mean, he goes, that sounds nice and all. I'm glad you're having a, a bit of a, an emotional moment, Saul, but it's only a matter of time until your paranoia catches up with you, man, and you're going to be hunting me again. And so the cat and mouse game will be on. And David thinks at this point in his life, look, Maybe, perhaps, one day, Saul's actually going to get me. Like, that, we've had way too many close calls. Maybe this deranged king is actually going to slaughter me. And so he does something very out of character here. Rather than seek God, remember he has the priest with him? Rather than, than, than seek God, what does he do? Well, he doesn't actually inquire of God. He talks to himself. Come to chapter 27, verse 1 with me. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. Look what he says. Then David said in his heart, you see that? You see that talking to himself, says in his heart, thought to himself. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Look, he may have got Saul off his back by doing this, but what is he doing? He's, he's dwelling in enemy territory. Forgive, forgetting to ask God for help, it's, we're going to see in just a second here, it's actually going to leave David vulnerable. He's going to be He's going to be in a real pickle here. In fact, if you read in verse 8, there's something interesting that's happening. In verse 8, on the one hand, what is David doing? Do you remember when Joshua comes in and he puts the nations, as he's told, under the ban, right, to, to drive out the Canaanites? Well, that conquest wasn't completed. So on the one hand, David is doing that. He's completing the conquest, He's, he works to complete what Joshua began as he puts non-Israelites from old, it says there, under the ban. He's, on the one hand, he's doing that, but on the other hand, he's not totally being honest, is he? He, he had to convince Akash, 
right? That he was attacking his own fellow Jews, which seemed to be going all right during those 16 months that they're there. Because notice what Akash thinks in verse 12. Notice what he says. So he, he's, he's duped him, right? And Akash trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. You get, what's, you get what's happening there? David's actually not attacking fellow Jews. He's bringing back the spoil, right? And then Akash says, where is this from? And he goes, oh, I, I, I was pinching it off my fellow Jews. And he goes, oh, this guy's great. He's like enemy number one to Israel. He'll be my bodyguard for life. This guy's going to be my best mate. But David, he, he's, he's, not, he's not telling the truth, is he? And so he's finding himself in, in quite a sticky situation. But you might think, oh, look, you know, I've got my men. They've got their families. This isn't really a bad deal. I, sure, I've got to be a bit of a double agent for a while, but, but we can ride this out until one day he's forced between a rock and a hard place. Because in the very next chapter, what do we see? Hey, David, all five of the capital cities of the Philistines are gathering. The whole confederation of the Philistines are gathering together to take on your people. You're with us, right? Right? And so what is he going to do? Oh, yeah. It's about time I get back at King Saul. He, he, he won't even touch the guy, let alone go to war against him. You see, forgetting to ask God for help, we're, we're, let's rewind the tape. It leaves him vulnerable. He didn't need to put himself in this situation. Friend, I don't know about you, but I face that temptation every day to push God to the margins and lead on my own understanding. You know, Proverbs, the famous one, 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lead not on your own understanding. You know, often people write that in a card, and that's nice. Or if you're feeling blue, they might say, well, I'm not really sure because I've only memorized three verses, but here's one for you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's nice, but let me say, if you're not feeling blue this morning, you have a propensity and a, and a proclivity, so do I, to lean on our own understanding, to be functional pagans. So we need to trust in the Lord, big stuff, small stuff. Trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and make your path straight. Be, and and why, why, are we, why do we do this? Why do we act like functional pagans? Because a little bit of success can bring confidence, right? If you're in high school, right? And, and you ask God to help you. Have you ever encountered a difficult teacher or a coach that seemed to have it out for you if you're in high school? I mean, I, I deserved that when I was in high school. So it's probably like, should be, you know, sympathizing with my teacher, not me. But maybe in, if you're in high school, maybe you've had a difficult teacher. And so what do you do? You talk to your parents about it. You pray about these things. You ask God for help. And you survive. Next year, you face another difficult teacher or coach. But... You remember from last time what to do, except you don't do it. You don't inquire of God because you think, oh, I got this. Or those of you that are married, maybe recently, friend, you, you've, you've hit a tough stretch in your marriage. 
right? And you've done this in the past. You've, you've, you've hit, a, you've hit a, a really difficult season in your marriage. You prayed about it. You asked God to help you through it. And he did. But then six months later, the same issues circle around again. Have you noticed that? And this time you think, oh, been there, done that. I got this. And you just bank on, this is just going to play out like it did before, and you're not seeking the Lord like you should be. You're leaning on your own reasoning, your own logic, your own understanding. Forgetting to ask God for help leaves you vulnerable. You know, I, I imagine it would be, I would imagine it would be quite tempting in a very secular society like Australia to think like your surrounding pagan neighbors. I would imagine that would be quite difficult because the general language around here is, as I've said, oh, it's a bit lucky. Yeah, you're a bit lucky. Or, you know, yeah, look, just should be all right. Should be fine. That's not how a Christian thinks. A Christian doesn't lean on their own understanding. Christian knows that they're weak, that, that they are vulnerable. But I imagine if you look around and everyone is swimming that way, must be, you must, and you don't want to look too weird, right? Okay. But it must be extremely difficult to feel like I've got to just go the other direction. But that's the only direction that we're called to go, friend. See, David finds himself in a pickle. He's in a sticky dilemma. Why? He didn't inquire of the Lord. Are, are you in a situation? I want you to honestly assess your life right now because often we tend to be victims of society. Oh, look, if my dad wasn't a jerk, I would never have made those choices like I did 20 years later and therefore I'm in this situation. There may be some truth to that. But you've also made poor choices. And you've also made choices that now you have to lay in them. So all I'm saying is, are you in the situation you're in now? Look, don't, don't just lay there and feel like, oh, now he's beating me up even more. No, no, no. How are you going to inquire of the Lord? God, help me through this situation. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. In prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So, so let's look at David's dilemma here, okay? In verse 1 of 28, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are going with me in the army. Notice uh, David's vague answer here, right? David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. It's not really a yes, is it? I mean, it's a sense. It's like, yeah, cool. You shall know what your servant can do. But he might be saying to himself, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. And just as we're wondering, is David really going to go out and fight against his own people, the anointed king himself? What's going to happen? We're on the edge of our seats. I mean, really, is he just going to, all right, you know, hey, look, you know, let's, let's just, I'm in a sticky situation, and God will understand, he'll forgive me, I'm just going to go out and kill my own people. What's going to happen? And just as we're leaning in, we're waiting, we interrupt this broadcast to 
give you a, a news report about King Saul. I mean, literally, as we're waiting, all of a sudden, what's going to happen? It just goes and puts us over here to King Saul. I mean, David's peril gets interrupted by a story of terror. See, David's story is going to play out next week in chapters 29 and 30. But embedded in this story that is dropped right in the middle of it is a story about Saul. He's on the other side of the battle line. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 sets the rig up. It, It says that Samuel died and Saul expelled those who practiced witchcraft, which seems kind of random, right? We're waiting for this. What's going to happen now? Verse 3. You see that there? I mean, can you feel it? Very well. You should know what your servant will do. Great. You're going to be my bodyguard for life. What's going to happen? You know, it's like Braveheart when they're both lining up. Dum, 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 dum. The faces painted blue. They may take our lives. Pull down that, right? What's going to happen? And then all of a sudden it just switches. In those days, Samuel died. Yeah, we've already heard and we already knew that. What's going on? And King Saul made an edict across the land that no witches were ever allowed. Dude, bring us back to the battle. It seems random, but you'll understand why if you look there. Verse 3, now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Hold on a tick. We already know Samuel's dead. He's long gone. Plus, why is it relevant to bring up these... What is a necromancer anyways? Like, who even talks like that? Well, they're people who claim to connect with the dead. Either by serving as intermediaries by whom the deceased would speak or rousing the dead themselves to speak. They perform seances as a way to communicate with the dead. And these rituals often occurred at nighttime. But Deuteronomy 18 makes clear that such practices were out of bounds for God's covenant people. And to Saul's credit, it says, did you see it there? He actually banished such practices. So he knows Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 26. Again, why is this all relevant? Well, come to verse 4. The Philistines assembled and, and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So the battle lines are drawn. And it says that Saul, with his troops, are up on Mount Gilboa. You see, it's from this vantage point, they're able to look down and observe the enemy's movements. But as they do, it dawns on them, just how outnumbered they really are. And Saul can't cope. He's, he's lost heart. Literally, I mean, do you see what it says that his, his heart feared and trembled? So, so in his hour of desperation, what does he do? Well, he turns to three, albeit legitimate, ways to seek God. Three ways... Israel typically sought divine guidance, dreams, Urim, and prophets. The only problem is, he doesn't get an answer, does he? Kind of difficult when 
slaughtered the priests. That's all. You want Urim? Well, remember the dude you killed? He had Urim. Remember the prophets? They judged you. You reap what you sow, son. You know? It's living in defiance of God leaves you hopeless. So look what Saul thinks. He thinks, yeah, right, okay. If, if God's not going to answer me, if he's giving me the silent treatment, if he's not talking to me, why don't I seek out one of those necromancers? So he turns to his servant and he says, if I can't get an answer from heaven, let's try hell. Go find me a witch. Verse 6. This is the king of Israel for a second here, guys. Think about this. This is insane. Verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, it's going to take us months to find such a person because you banished them from the land and it'd be difficult to find one. No, behold, there's just one right around the road over here in the next suburb. I mean, isn't that just amazing how, how yes, it's commendable that he banished them, but yet it's still right there. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And he thinks, I'll go seek God's will through one of them. And once he's made aware of this woman's whereabouts, he disguises himself and like a criminal, sneaks out of the camp during the night to track her down. Now, let me give you some geography here. In order to do this, right, there's a battle that's going to happen the, the next day. So the Philistines would have had patrol guards going up and down the roads. So Saul has to strip himself of his royalty, his rings, his, his robe, all of those things. He has to get rid of his spear. And he's disguised, sneaks out in the night, and he has to sneak past the Philistines in order to get to the witch. He's a walking contradiction. Partly truth, but mainly fiction. Look at him. That's what Alistair Begg, I listened to his sermon. If you don't know what that is, when you get going with this, everyone download Truth for Life on your phone, you'll thank me later. But Alistair Begg says, he's a walking contradiction. Partly truth and partly fiction. Look at him. And it's so true. Here's this guy that's supposed to be defending God's people. He's now put away all his royalty. Why? Not in humility, no, to go seek guidance from one of these necromancers. This has to be one of the darkest hours of his life, honestly. And you can't miss... So what does he do? He goes to her, and she's a bit apprehensive, right? Did you guys catch that when Rhonda just read? She's going, oh, are you guys like... You setting a trap for me? You, I mean, because if I practice this divination for you, if, if, if I do this this, you know, witchcraft, the penalty for that is death. That's the death penalty. So are, are, 
Are you guys setting me up? And Saul puts his, her mind at ease. He says, oh, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. It's okay. But what he puts her mind at ease with is just, it's just appalling. Look at verse 10. Check out his audacious words to this woman in verse 10 to, to put her mind at ease. Verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. There's the C, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, God's covenant name. Saul swore to her by the Lord as Yahweh lives. No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. You can't miss the irony. He swears an oath by the Lord by the Lord's life, all the while seeking help from a source that God had condemned. This just might be the darkest hour of his life. Robert Bergen put it this way. He said, Saul's oath invoked the Lord to grant immunity to one who broke the Lord's command. It turned God against himself. Such an oath was not only foolish, but actually blasphemous. Unbelievable. Anyway, after receiving this word of assurance from Saul, she agrees to perform the seance. But wonder, wonders exactly, well, who are you after? I mean, sure, I'll, I'll do it if you give me your word. Yeah, okay, I got your word. Well, who, who are you after? Ah, oh, Samuel. Let's just say in these next few verses, she bites off more than she can chew. Come to verse 11. Verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. Well, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, plural Elohim there. That's her way of understanding what she sees. Remember, she's a pagan, right? So she sees Elo gods. I see a God coming up out of the earth. Oh, that sounds good. It must be him, right? He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a, what? In a robe. Ooh, do you remember the robe? We're back to chapter 15. Remember, Samuel comes, brings judgment on Saul. The kingdom's torn. And as he turns, Saul grabs his robe rips the robe. What is his appearance, right? The robe and Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. What do we do with this? It certainly raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Is this actually Samuel? Like the spirit of Samuel or is this a demon acting like him? Does this witch have the ability to raise the dead? There's certainly more questions that we could tackle, but let's just do those two. Is this really Samuel coming from the realm of the dead? I think so, given what he says. 
It's essentially, if you look there, what he says, it's essentially the same message that he's already given back in chapter 15. He in no way changes or adapts it. He's still the prophet of the Lord and so speaks in his name. It's worth noting, too, in this message we'll look at in just a second, he uses God's covenant name, you know that name Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He uses that name seven times. I don't believe a demon would represent God and talk this way. So I'm not convinced this is a demon impersonating Samuel, like some kind of demonic delusion. I think it's truly him. Okay, fair enough. So how did this happen? <laughs> that's, probably the, that's probably the bigger question. Does this witch have the power to bring departed spirits back from the dead and then prophesy to the living? Well, to answer that, we need to pay close attention to how the woman reacted. How does she respond when Samuel was raised? Ah, she screams, right? Screams out in a loud voice. I mean, such a strong reaction shows that his appearance was unexpected. Perhaps this was the first time she had ever actually succeeded in contacting the dead. This event was completely outside of her usual experience. It was outside of her control, and that's why she's freaked out. She might have acted like she could pull off this resurrection gig, right? But when the real thing happens, she's shocked, she's petrified. This isn't the norm. But still, how do we explain this? I don't think, I don't think we're meant to be dazzled by the skills and power of some witch of Endor but to be dazzled and amazed by the power and permission of God. This was his unique act. For his own reasons, which we don't know, he permitted Saul to come up. God intervened in this moment and sent Samuel's spirit as a sign of judgment. Isn't it amazing that God says, all right, you want to see Samuel, do you? All right. I'll give you Samuel. And he's going to say the same exact thing that he's already said. Now, we could also connect this. So I, I do think that the purpose here is to bring judgment to a closing dynasty. We're about to see opening up a new dynasty into 2 Samuel. So I think that's part of it. But I think if we... Think of the wider context of 1 Samuel. Think back to Hannah's prayer. It'll come up here on the screen. What's one of the things that Hannah prayed? The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. I think this particular story is an example of God bringing up from the dead, from Sheol, Samuel, and listen, bringing down to the dead, bringing down to the place of Sheol, like Saul. He brings low, he exalts. Because living in defiance of God, friend, leaves you hopeless. Now, let's read what Samuel says here. Then Samuel said to Saul, I love, I love this, right? This, 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 guy's, this guy just tell, tells it like it is, right? Why have you disturbed me? Isn't that great? Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And once again, once again, 
you'd think that the penny would drop for Saul, right? Just shows you how dark we can get in our patterns of sin. So blind. We, we, we can come up with so many excuses. When we're, when, we're in a, when we're in a bind and we're feeling like there's nowhere to turn, it's amazing how we can justify sin. Because the spirit of Samuel is right there and he goes, why have you disturbed me? And he goes, what am I doing? Oh my goodness. No, he goes, well, what did you expect? I mean, that's basically what he says, right? I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Didn't include the Urim, which is interesting. Maybe he felt a little bad about that. Kind of, yeah, not going to put that on his resume, right? After he had him slaughtered. But God doesn't answer me, right, by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. I've summoned you. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. He said that in chapter 15, and now he fills in who that neighbor is, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, okay, so there, he just repeats the same thing of what he already said. But he adds this little bit, right? Message of chapter 15 hasn't been repealed. It's still in force. He picks up where he left off. Same guy, in a sense, the dead Samuel is the same as the living Samuel, right? However, he does add this little bit in 20, verse 29. Can you see it there? You and your sons will be with me. Dun, dun, dun. Right? On the morrow. In other words, Saul will join the community of the dead. These words were more than the king could bear. And he just collapses in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. He who once stood head and shoulders above the community is now flat on his face on the ground. Living in defiance of God, friend, leaves you hopeless. Now, next scene might seem a bit redundant at first because that's the end for Saul. He knows, well, that's pretty much, I'm done and dusted now. I'll just go fight tomorrow. I guess to his credit, he does go and fight, though. But he, you know, it's over. My career's done. And then there's this funny scene where the witch says, oh, you look really tired, and you, you look really knackered. Let me get you some food. And we're kind of like, and she goes, and she, she prepares all this stuff and sets it before him, and he just kind of, come on, eat, eat, man. All right, fine, I'll eat. And, and we're kind of, we're left going, and then they left into the night. Kind of going, why did they have to include that bit? Well, let's remember how Saul's journey started. When Samuel said to him, you will be the king, he dines with the holy prophet of God. Right? 
When his journey ends, he's dining with the devil. Similar to Judas. It was nighttime. And as Saul and his companions tear out into the night, do you remember Jesus, the Last Supper, is there and Judas tears out into the night. So where do we go from here? Here are some implications and they bring us back to the gospel of Christ. Let me say this, friend. If you are without Jesus, if you are without Christ, you are without God and destined for judgment. If you are without Christ, you are destined for judgment. I don't care how sympathetic you are towards Christianity or if you have good memories of church or Christian holidays. If you are without God, if you are without the Lord Jesus, you are without hope. Jesus said he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus also said, you were either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. You see, understand, this is why proclaiming the gospel is so urgent. Without the presence of God, there is no hope. And when someone rejects the gospel, the tragedy is, not that they reject you or they reject me or our way of thinking, or reject some kind of morality plan, the tragedy is that person is rejecting God. And I've said this before, the deceiving thing about all of that, about living on the central coast is, today is a beautiful spring day, and you can reject God? It's not really going to cost you much in, the, in terms of the immediate, is it? in terms of the way that you would interpret things. Yeah, yeah, and not for me. How many of your friends and family say that? Oh, look, yeah, it's not for me. It's not for me. But they will meet God in judgment. This is if we, and, and you know, it's another reminder here too as well, guys. If we claim to follow Christ and belong to him, we need to remember the words of that famous hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If that guy wrote it on the central coast, I think he'd say prone to be lazy, prone to be apathetic, disillusioned and bitter. But we have Christ to reorient that. Living in defiance of God, though, friend, will leave you hopeless. Walking in obedience to Christ is living life as it's meant to, living life to the full. Doesn't mean it's happy clappy, but God has made you in his image. You're not just here by chance. The Lord knows every detail of your life. The fact that you're sitting here breathing is his common grace to you. How much longer you know, Saul's heart had become so hard, he just hit him with the same message, right? Same message came and hit him with the same message. How many times are you sitting in church and you hear the same message and you go, ah, yeah, maybe one day. 
Not now. Not now. Not now. Your heart just becomes hard. 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 Jesus is your only hope. He is your only hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Is he your king? He is the king in all his beauty. Turn to the Lord, Jesus. Be forgiven and saved. And those of you that know Christ, anchor your hopes, your anxieties, all of that in Christ, who is your rock, your redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for passages that are heavy, and yet, Lord, as we study them, we are reminded of your character and your goodness, your sovereignty. Lord, even those that seem out of reach, out of touch, you come. So, Lord, for those that are sitting here that, for whatever reason, their own embarrassment, maybe, their own pride, would you grant them? Would you grant them eternal life? Cause them to repent, Lord. They will never do it on their own. Open eyes, hearts. Lord, for those of us that have compartmentalized our faith in areas, we know the truth, and we justify our sin. We push you to the margins because we think, not nah, we got this one. Forgive us, Lord. Cause, we pray by your grace, that to change, effective immediately in our lives. Give us, give us the grace to do so, Lord. Give us the power to do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen.